Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hi. Today, we're talking about award-winning books. It's one of the reading prompts in the Books and Bites reading challenge, which we're kicking off this month. We talked a little about the challenge last month, but Michael or Melissa, would one of you like to remind our listeners about what it is? Sure. So this year, this entire calendar year of 2020, Books and Bites is having a reading challenge where we have 15 different challenges. And you, if you want to be entered to win a prize, you have to complete 12 out of the 15. And we've got a little form. We've got 15 different challenges and at the end of the year, we'll collect those forms where you fill in which book you read for each challenge, and you'll be entered in to win either a Kindle Paperwhite or a $100 gift card to Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington. I think those are pretty awesome prizes. I'm oh, yeah. really sad that I'm not eligible, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like we're not surrounded by books all day, every day here, but you know, you want to take some home sometimes and keep them forever. Yeah, and write in them to your heart's content. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do that, or you can enter to win a Kindle. And of course, everyone gets their very own Books and Bites Challenge button, everyone who participates and turns in their entry form. And you can pick up the entry form either here at the library or you can visit us online on our website and pick one up. Um, you do, of course, have to keep track of your reading over the course of the year. Um, but we were just talking about the benefits of doing that. Yeah, I just wrapped up looking at mine for last year. I am ultra nerdy about it and have a spreadsheet that tracks all kinds of things, including... Uh, publish date and length and where I got it from, whether it's from the library or something I own. And, you know, I try to keep track of uh, if it was a, an author of color or someone from the LGBTQ community so I can try and keep my, my reading diverse. Um, so I, I've got all kinds of data at my fingertips. How do you all keep track of yours? I do mine on, on Goodreads. Um, you know, I set up a reading challenge at the beginning of the year and do it that way. And then you just add books when you're done with them? Yeah. Once you'd finish, you sit finish, you rate it, you type in a review and add it to the list. And I almost nailed mine last year. I tried, I shot for 50, did 43, which. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the most I've ever read. Yeah. That's awesome. Books and Bites will uh, oh, yeah. definitely up your reading game. Yes, it will. Yeah, I am. <clears throat> this is the first year I've kept track of my reading. I just kept a paper list. Um, I did track books that I read and books that I listened to separately. Um, I also noted which books were poetry because that was a goal of mine to read more poetry. Um, yeah, so it doesn't have to be anything fancy, and you could just keep track on our handy little Books and Bites Challenge entry form. Yeah, that's an easy way to do it. If, if you want to aim for 12, that's one a month, get through 12 books in a year, that's pretty good. And, of course, one of them could be a middle teen or middle grade book. One of them can be a comic or graphic novel. So we definitely threw in some, some giveaways there. 
Yep, those are those are pretty quick and easy to get through. So you don't have to take a whole lot of time to get through. So our first, the first challenge that we're talking about today, and with the Books and Bites Challenge, you don't have to read in any particular order. So just because we're talking about award-winning books in January doesn't mean that you need to read an award-winning book this month. We did want to talk about maybe one of the common misconceptions about award winners is that they're all super serious, super heavy, National Book Award kind of books, but that's definitely not the case. Yeah, you don't have to read a Pulitzer Prize winner to make this challenge happen for you. Yeah, you got awards like the Bram Stoker Award for Horror, Nebula, and the Hugo Award for Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I mean, they just run the gamut. Just about every genre has their own award. The Edgar Award for Mysteries. Yeah. And, um, of course, we're giving you lots of ideas today, uh, but if you these, for some reason, are not appealing to you um, and you'd like help finding different books, uh, we can also help you do that at the at the Ask a Librarian desk. Um, the Novelist database that I think we've talked about before, you can search by award winners. Um, so there's all kinds of options. This should be an easy one to complete. My first award-winning recommendation is The Northwater by N. McGuire. It was nominated for quite a bit back in 2016 and 2017. It was long-listed for the main booker in 2016, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, a Goodreads Choice Awards nominee, and was put on several Best Books of the Year lists. But it finally pulled out a win in 2017, taking home the Encore Award, which is handed out by the Royal Society of Literature for Best Second Novel. The novel follows the trials and tribulations of the whaling ship The Volunteer as they set sail in 1859 from Hull, England for the Arctic Circle during the waning days of whaling. For the most part, it follows Patrick Sumner, the the ship's surgeon. He's quite the unlucky guy. His parents both died when he was a child. His caregiver then drunk himself to death, and then he enlisted in the British Army, serving in the Indian Rebellion of 1857, where he suffered humiliation and betrayal. The guy has had a rough life. We are also introduced to Arthur Brownlee, the captain of the volunteer, who is infamously unlucky, surviving a Donner Party-esque catastrophe at sea. Then there's Henry Drax, one of the harpooners of the ship. The opening chapter follows him around the harbor before the ship sets sail, allowing us to see exactly what kind of psychopath is about to board the ship. So as the volunteer travels farther north, the true mission of the voyage is revealed, and things start to go pear-shaped for the crew, with the true nature of Henry Drax being revealed to everyone. In reviews that I read of the Northwater, Henry Drax was compared to Judge Holden from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, which I hear is one of the most ruthless villains in literature. I found this historical thriller quite compelling with strong evocative writing, knowing when to ratchet up the tension. It's also quite grim and unflinchingly violent. It doesn't shy away that whaling was a very violent and rough trade. However, it's also richly detailed, explaining the process of creating an eye stock to keep the ship from being crushed by the ice flows in the process of flinching a whale for blubber. I will caution that there is a lot of harm to animals that is graphically described. Dogs, bears, seals, sharks, and of course whales. I did up skimming through some of those descriptions. Um, Rita likes would include Moby Dick by Melville 
in, in the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex by Nathaniel Phil Brick. Also an award winner, winning the National Book Award for Nonfiction in, 20, in 2000 and the Ambassador Book Award for American Studies in 2001. I paired the Northwater with a delicious-looking Portuguese-style cod dish found essential emerald, favorite recipes and hard-won wisdom from my life in the kitchen by Emerald Lagasse. Besides the cod, the recipe calls for ingredients like Yukon gold potatoes, bay leaves, hot chorizo, yellow onion, lacinado kale, and dry white wine. You should be able to find fresh cod at Whole Foods or frozen fillets at your local grocery store. I haven't made this recipe yet, but I hope to soon. I love that there's an award for best second novel. I know. I <laughs> there are so many digging. out there for first novels, but not as many for second novels. And the, a good second novel is an achievement. Yeah. They're always talking about the sophomore slump. Yes. Um, so, and and I think it can be harder in some ways to get your second novel published because with the first novel, you know, they're, you're new. Yeah. Well, and you have all the time in the world to work on it. Right. Yeah. Often a second novel you got to publish m- very quickly or mm-hmm. much more quickly than you wrote the first one. And then if you have a major hit, then you got to. Make it even bigger the next time. Like, out of <laughs> so pressure. much pressure. So much pressure. So I'm, I will have to check that out because that's a really cool word to have. Yeah. So my first book is Days Without End by Sebastian Barry. And it won the Costa Award for the novel and Book of the Year in 2016, which is a set of awards for English language books written by authors in the UK and Ireland. After finishing the book, I learned that this is the fourth book of Barry's to focus on a member of the McNulty family, and another is set to come out in March. Thomas McNulty is the featured member of Days Without End. He's an orphan and refugee who fled famine in Ireland and found war, fear, and love on the frontier of America. I listened to the audio, which is read beautifully by Aidan Kelly, and I think the combination of the narrator's accent and the clever yet earnest prose made the book even more special to me than I perhaps would have thought if I'd read it in print. I've seen reviewers call the narrative a fever dream and dreamlike, and I think there's some truth to that. The tale is told by someone who's used to telling tales and with a fair bit of honest reflection thrown in to keep everyone human. We follow Thomas as he meets and joins up with John Cole in Missouri around 1849, and they together end up in the army, venturing out west to fight colonialist battles. There are several battle scenes scattered throughout the book, and the description of each one is vivid and expertly paced. I actually found myself enjoying the battle scenes, which I would not have predicted before this book. (laughs) Uh, Thomas and John Cole end up with the custody of an Ogala Sioux child that they rename Winona because her actual name is too hard to pronounce. And the description that follows of their lives together is as equally vivid and expertly paced as the battle scenes. This book truly contains multitudes. It's a Western an immigrant story, an orphan story, a love story, a coming-of-age story. The characters are complicated and real, and the prose is complex and funny in a way that I think really only the Irish can achieve. Like, there's just something about the way that he writes that it's, you gotta listen and you gotta pay attention, and it's, like, either heartbreakingly beautiful or heartbreakingly devastating or hilarious all at the same time. 
As for what to pair with this slim but meaty novel, I would recommend seeking out a fine Irish whiskey. The characters don't eat much beyond salt pork, so a glass of something complicated and spicy is just the ticket here. I was recently able to try Slain Whiskey, which is triple casked and made in County Meath, which is about halfway between Dublin and the border with Northern Ireland. It is apparently available locally at Kroger, and it is well worth seeking out. Oh, definitely do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, someone, uh, a friend of ours brought it to our New Year's Eve party, and we were all very glad that they were sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Rainer Wynn's best-selling memoir, The Salt Path, won the Royal Society of Literature Christopher Bland Prize, an award for the best debut by a UK writer over the age of 50. It was also shortlisted for two other UK prizes, the 2018 Costa Biography Award and the 2018 Wainwright Golden Beer Book Prize. I want to know more about that. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is not about beer. (laughs) It is is a prize for nature writing. (laughs) Within Within the space of a week, Wynne and her husband Moth lose their Welsh farm and learn that Moth suffers from a rare degenerative brain disease called corticobasal degeneration, or CBD. Facing homelessness and complete loss of income, as well as a terminal prognosis for moth, they decide to walk the 630 miles of the UK's southwest coast path, wild camping along the way. Both are in their early 50s, and moth is suffering from pain and stiffness that make movement slow and difficult. In her spare, moving prose, Wynne does not sugarcoat the difficulties they face. Hunger the cold and rain, the filth of their clothes and bodies, and the scorn and mistreatment they face when people find out they're homeless. Wynne also writes about the plight of other homeless people they meet on their journey, including both those who live in cities as well as those living in the country. Some of the homeless people they meet are employed in low-wage jobs and just can't afford the high rents. But for all that, there are positives and people who offer kindness. Wynne is proud of the fact that they have chosen to do something rather than passively await their fates, and they are especially happy when they realize that Moth's body responds well to the rigorous physical demands of the trail. There is also humor, as when strangers keep mistaking Moth for the poet Simon Armitage, who has embarked on a tour of readings along the path. And of course, there's the beauty of the wild coast all around them. Like the memoir Wild by Cheryl Strayed, the salt path vividly portrays a difficult situation, but is ultimately an inspiring read. One of my favorite moments in the book occurs when a pair of elderly brothers offers them wild blackberries. Quote, you thought blackberries had passed, didn't you? Unquote. One of the men says after seeing Wynne's surprise. Quote, or you've eaten them and thought you didn't like them. No. You need to wait until the last moment, that moment between perfect and spoiled. The blackbirds know that moment. And if the mist comes right then, laying the salt air gently on the fruit, you have something that money can't buy and chefs can't create. 
a perfect, lightly salted blackberry. You can't make them. It has to come with time and nature. They're a gift when you think summer's over and the good stuff has all gone. They're a gift." Unquote. You may not be able to create the perfect, lightly salted blackberry, but you can create salted dark chocolate vegan blackberry brownies. Ooh. <laughs> They're especially appropriate because Wynn and Moth survived for days on an emergency stash of fudge. I baked these brownies over the holidays, and though I personally wish they'd been a little fudgier, my husband gave them rave reviews. If you'd like to try them for yourself, you can do so at the link in our blog. My second award-winning recommendation is The Devil All the Time by Donald Ray Pollock. This novel, interestingly enough, won two awards in France. In 2012, I apologize if I'm butchering the French language, it won the Grand Prix de Literature Policière, a French award for crime and detective fi fiction in the international category in the 2013 Prix Mystère de la Critique, another French award for detective fiction, winning best foreign novel. The author also won the 2012 Thomas and Lily D. Chaffin Award for Appalachian Writing, which is handed out by Moorhead State University for this novel. That's quite a range of awards to I win. know. I was like, you didn't win anything in the U.S., but you won, it won third place for a German award, and then these two French awards for foreign language, which... And it's not a translated word. No, he's, he's from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so the novel's plot is a little hard to describe with its nonlinear narrative. Basically, it follows a group of disturbing yet fascinating characters from roughly 1945 to the mid-60s, switching back and forth between Cold Creek, West Virginia, and Mead, Ohio, and then its surrounding hollows. It starts off with Willard Russell on his way back home to Cold Creek, West Virginia in 1945 after serving as a Marine in the Pacific Theater. On his way home, he stops in Meade, Ohio, where he meets a waitress in a diner named Charlotte, who he immediately falls in love with. They get married and settle down in a holler near a small town called Knockhamstiff, Ohio, a town that actually does exist. Uh, they have a son, Arvin Eugene Russell. When Arvin is about 11, Charlotte gets very ill. And with Willard being a devout Christian, he tries unsuccessfully to save her by making sacrifices at his quote-unquote prayer log in the clearing of the woods. And swirling all around and entwining with the story of the Russells are the stories of several strange and bizarre characters. There's a spider-eating preacher and his guitar-playing wheelchair-bound cousin, a husband and wife serial killer team that traverse the country's highways looking for models for their gruesome photos, a preacher who preys on young girls, and a violently corrupt sheriff. The stories all coalesce into a violent and bloody finale. It, this book definitely blurs genre lines, but I think this novel would be best described as Appalachian, Southern, Gothic, slash noir. It reminded me some of Flannery O'Connor with its grotesque and bizarre characters and the violent circumstances they tend to find themselves in, as well as the dark humor that is laced throughout the novel. 
Also, this novel is being adapted into a film and slated to appear on Netflix sometime earlier, early this year. It will star Sebastian Stan, Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, and Bill Skarsgård. Um, I found a recipe for a slow cooker roasted pork shoulder from the cookbook Vittles, an Appalachian journey with recipes from Ronnie Lundy, which I think you might be familiar with, Carrie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and any dedicated books and bites listeners are also <laughs> familiar with. Yes. <laughs> so you might know, but you know, it's a it's a book that explores the history of food and the current food scene in Appalachia with stories, traditions, and recipes. Um, this recipe is pretty simple. It calls for a three-pound bone-in pork shoulder, but freshly ground black pepper, salt, apple, apple cider vinegar, sorghum syrup, a yellow onion, and cornstarch. It's a perfect meal for the wintertime, and it's absolutely delicious. <laughs> you sound like you speak from experience. Oh, yeah. So my second award-winning book is another that I heartily recommend listening to. It's A Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds, and the cover has so many stickers on it you can barely see what's underneath. The list of awards it has won. Uh, It won the Newbery Medal, the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, the Odyssey Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Young Adult Literature, and the Edgar Award for Best Young Adult. These were in 2017 and 2018. It came out at the end of 2017. It is written in verse and moves quickly. So the narration it takes to listen to it, it takes just over an hour and a half. Plus it's read by the author who's a fantastic reader. Uh, anytime that you can listen to anything by Jason Reynolds, do it. He's, he's amazing and he does a lot of events too. So if you have the chance, he's, he's fabulous. Um, anyway. This is not to say that the print isn't worth reading if you're not into audio. It very much is. I'm mostly just here to tell you that the audio is also amazing, and you should maybe even just read both. Because the the print version is a very different experience than the audio, and I ended up, you know, getting the print version and looking at it after I'd listened to it. And it just, it, it makes it even more complex and has a lot more levels of of interest and metaphor and there's a lot going on in this book. It's very short, but it's just packed. So anyway, the story follows Will as he tries to follow the rules of his neighborhood in the aftermath of his brother Sean's death. After he decides that he is obligated to get revenge against the person he knows killed Sean, Will has to ride the elevator to his building's lobby. But with each floor, he's confronted by the ghost of someone from his past each of whom are connected to Will and the cycle of violence that Will has decided to perpetuate. Nearly all of the book takes place in just over a minute of time, the time it takes for the elevator to descend from the seventh floor to the lobby, and in that minute and seven seconds, the history and the future of Will's decision is laid out for everyone to examine by each ghost. Everyone that gets in the elevator is a victim of gun violence, and as they talk to Will and explain the circumstances of their deaths to him, Will's neighborhood, family, and friends are illustrated through the lens of this violent cycle. Will's obligation to seek revenge and his obligation to follow the quote-unquote rules is echoed by his visitors, and by the end, he's presented instead with a choice. The audio makes the narrative feel very much like a short story, 
just packed with symbolism and weighty in subject matter. I felt emotionally wrung out by the end, but while the story is tough and brutal, there still is some hope buried in there. For some reason, I can't fathom this is the first book I've read by Jason Reynolds, but it certainly won't be the last. So this one would also count for challenge number three, a teen or middle grade book? Yep, it would very much. It is a YA book, and um, I don't think we, we don't have a challenge about verse. It wouldn't, you couldn't mm -mm. count it for multiple things. You can count it for these award-winning and teen or middle grade, because according to our challenge, you can use, you can do that once. You can use one book to complete two challenges, but you can only do that once. So you could use this for two. And it's very short. So if you come to December and you're like, what do I read? There you go. So my next book is a book that I know Melissa has also read. Um, it's Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Yes, yes, yes. And we were hoping to talk about this book at some point, but our well, challenge we sort of, <laughs> yeah, so we can have a little mini discussion. Um, Red at the Bone is both a New York Times notable book for 2019 and a library reads favorite. This short lyrical novel is about three generations of an African-American family in Brooklyn. The book opens in 2001 with 16-year-old Melody's coming-of-age ceremony. Melody wears a dress originally made for her mother's own coming-of-age ceremony, one that was called off when Iris became pregnant with Melody at the age of 15. After Melody's birth, Iris heads for college at Oberlin, leaving Melody in the care of her father, Aubrey, and her grandparents, Sabe and Poboy. Red at the Bone moves back and forth through time in the points of view of Melody, her parents, and her grandparents, exploring generational differences, race, class, and sexuality. This spare, nonlinear novel is as richly textured as poetry. Like good poetry, it deserves not just one, but multiple reads, and I hope I get the chance to do so soon. I have a feeling I'll find something new each time I read it. If you've enjoyed Woodson's books for children or are a fan of Sandra Cisneros, you might enjoy Red at the Bone. Aubrey's description of food at his daughter Melody's par party is mouthwatering. Quote, bowls of red rice and beans, platters of barbecue chicken, a mountain of potato salad on a bright blue plate, miniature veggie, beef, and chicken patties, pyramids of cornbread squares, even a whole fish covered with peppers and onions, unquote. Any one of those dishes would feed the soul after reading this book. But since it's January, and you may be wondering just what you're going to cook in your new Instant Pot, I recommend the Vegetarian Red Beans and Rice from the Fresh and Healthy Instant Pot Cookbook. Electric pressure cookers make cooking dried beans faster and easier, and though this recipe doesn't use the traditional sausage, the mix of spices and soy sauce provides plenty of flavor. This recipe has made the regular winter rotation in our house. And I must say, as our Books and Bites audiobook shill, the audio for Red at the Bone is amazing. It is read by a full cast, not a full cast, a mostly full cast. Mm. And Jacqueline Woodson does 
the narration that doesn't have a character associated with it. Mm-hmm. And she's also an excellent reader. Um, if you haven't listened to any of her other books, highly recommend them. Because um, I think she reads Brown Girl Dreaming and maybe others. But the cast that does Red at the Bone is really, really good. And I, I, I agree with you that I need to reread it. Um, so if you haven't listened to it, definitely do that. Yeah, no, I, I often like to reread when I'm listening to audio. So that that's a good tip that a good way for me to get my rereading in when I'm trying to get in a bunch of new books yeah well and it's another short one because the print Mm -hmm. book is only like 200 pages so I think the audio is like five and a half hours it's really not much and the the print version did not take long to read either yeah it's it's a pretty quick one Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produce this podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can learn more about the podcast on our website at jesspublib.org slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can learn more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.